Hello and welcome to Oh God, What Now? I'm your host, Alex Andre. Before we start, here's the big news I promised last week. Our next London live show is on Wednesday the 8th of December at the Leicester Square Theatre. As it's a Christmas special, we simply had to call it Ho, 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 God, What Now? I'll be joining Ian, Naomi and Dorian for a look back on another brilliant year for Britain. So please do join us. <laughs> it will be great fun and also therapy. Patreon people get early bird access and discounts. Of course, tickets go on general sale on Friday, 29th of October. So Patreon people, if you're listening early, you've still got a chance to nab the best seats at the best price. Go to leicestersquaretheatre.com to find out more. We will see you there. And hold tight for some not London events coming soon. Now, let's meet this week's panel. Minnie Rahman is the Interim Chief Executive of the Joint Council of the Welfare of Immigrants. Hello, Minnie. Hello. Minnie, this week, Tory MPs defended their decision to vote against an amendment to the Environment Bill that would have placed the legal duty on water companies not to pump raw sewage into the country's rivers. Now the government appears to have been forced into a U-bend. I mean U-turn. I mean U-turn. <laughs> <laughs> Does the concession go far enough? I mean, they're not afraid to U-turn, that's the first thing to say. I mean, they just love it, don't they? We don't actually know that much detail about the amendment that they're proposing, apart from that it will be similar to the amendment that was tabled in the Lords in the first place. So the original rationale from the government about why they objected to that proposal was that it would be too costly to deliver and that it would bankrupt the water industry. I also saw like an Clean amazing... Clean water <laughs> bankrupt the water exactly. industry. Exactly. I see a problem there. <laughs> 100%. Um, I also saw Tory MPs kind of objecting to the amendment because it didn't have a specific delivery plan or an impact assessment attached to it, which is very much something that the government should and could do if they accepted the amendment in the first place. So I'm hoping that once the amendment is tabled, it includes all kinds of things to suit their new agenda. Yeah, well, if Brexit didn't include those things, there wouldn't hold much hope. Um, a lot of them batted away criticism by linking it to the tragic killing of the MP David Amos. They claimed that opposition to this was toxic and unfair. They now agree with it. How can they have been so completely right, both when they voted against it and now they <laughs> <laughs> I mean, they are just, I mean, it's just classic populism, isn't it? They, they're so unbelievably swayed by public opinion. I did also have a thought, which was, it was kind of a nerdy thought just in general about how Parliament works. Like, I don't think this is that specific to this government. You know, most governments like to do things on their own terms and not to accept defeat. You often get things at different stages of bills in Parliament, committee stage in particular, where someone will put forward an amendment and the government will say, you don't table it, we'll table it at the next stage and there's kind of some back and forth around it. So, you know... It's <laughs> You're not, not the boss of me. <laughs> yeah, it's that, you know, convince them it was their own idea. But They're basically men. Yeah, pretty much. <laughs> I'll end it there. <laughs> Ian Dunt is an author and columnist at The Eye. Hello, Ian. Hello. Ian, Keir Starmer said he wouldn't change the law so that Class A drug users get away with a warning. You came out quite strongly against that position, but is it that much of a surprise that a former director of public prosecutions would have quite a rigid view on drugs? Well, it wouldn't have been, and we sort of assumed that he wouldn't be the man to break the consensus. I mean, you know, generally speaking, no matter what their politics, they never want to go against the consensus, whether it's Jeremy Corbyn, David mm -hmm. Cameron, Theresa May, whatever – and yet he started making 
weirdly positive noises about a month ago when Scotland's chief law officer came out and said, well, actually, we're going to take class A's and also allow the police to have the discretion to give a warning instead of a um, prosecute. That was essentially the de facto decriminalisation of drugs in Scotland. Mm. That's really, I mean, it, it matters which way the police take it, but that, that's opening the door to that policy. And at the time, Starmer, this was just before the Labour conference, so you sort of feel, what well, if he's willing to get into it right now, he's really willing to get into it, seemed pretty open to that idea. Um, the Shadow Home Secretary came out and said, oh, non-custodial, you know, since this is something we can work through. And there was all this mood music. It wasn't just coming from Starmer, it was just coming right, from the right. Shadow Home Secretary. One month later, it fucking dies on its ass. And the reason it dies on its ass, of course, is because Boris Johnson got that really meaty laugh during his conference speech about the powder rooms of North London, letting criminals all the same old terms yeah, 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 you've yeah. had a million times. So actually, uh, in this case, I assumed very little from him going into it. Then he offered me a flicker of hope, which lasted for approximately 30 days, which is, you know, at least 20 days longer than most of my flickers of hope <laughs> last for. And then the whole thing fucking came crashing down again. Our guest this week is a professor of history at the University of Sheffield and the author of several books on the English Civil War. His new book, A Useful History of Britain, The Politics of Getting Things Done, is out now. Michael Braddock, welcome to the podcast. Well, thanks very much for having me. Michael, you begin the book with a Mark Bloch quote, misunderstanding of the present is the inevitable consequence of ignorance of the past. Do you think that this is one of the primary drivers of British politics over the last few years, a sort of yearning for a glorious past that barely anyone can remember and may not, in fact, have ever existed. Yeah, I think a lot of uh, public discussion of history is really about identity. We all invent our own pasts. Uh, I've never br broken anyone's heart, but I've, I've had my heart broken kind of accounts of one's own past. <laughs> and I think we do that collectively. We, we generate the past that fits our sense of who we are and who we're going to be in the future. And it's no coincidence, I think, that in the aftermath of Brexit, we've had this, these rival versions of the British past because it's a way of thinking about who we are now and who we might be in the future. So it seems pretty much inevitable to me that much public discussion is of that kind. Uh, I think what Bloch was trying to say was there's another way of thinking about it, which is there's all this past experience and all the things I've learned in my, I'd like to say, you know, 28 years, but it's a bit longer than that, have <laughs> um, helped me navigate the present. And, and the past is not just a source of memory and identity, but of practical experience too. So I'm just trying to shift our shift us onto a more sort of practical view of what we might learn from the past, apart from who we are and where we're going. A worthy endeavour. This week <laughs> on the show, we look at Rishi Sunak's budget, searching for razor blades in the toffee apples. Plus, we'll be speaking to Michael about the long reach of the history of these islands and why ancient wars and political intrigue from centuries ago still follow us around today. And on our extra bit for Patreon backers, this is spurious. We look at ways in which popular fiction has mangled history and pick our favourite confected moments. Can there be a more lamentable picture, Robert Peel once remarked, than that of a Chancellor of the Exchequer seated on an empty chest by a pool of bottomless deficiency fishing for a budget? 
Rishi Sunak debuted his autumn collection of little red briefcases on the steps of 11 Downing Street today in a budget that, according to its own publicity, will make a strong economy fit for a new age of optimism, the sort of meaningless drivel usually reserved for desperate, sleepless advertising executives 20 minutes before a presentation to Kendall Roy. Ian, we're recording on Wednesday afternoon before the think tanks have got their teeth into the full OBR figures behind the budget. That caveat aside, can we identify good and bad news at this stage? I mean, obviously, it's excellent news for bankers and Prosecco drinkers and doubly so for Prosecco drinking bankers. Anything else? Yeah, I mean, if if you drink liqueurs on domestic flights, you're a winner <laughs> because for some reason these are the people that must be helped. Um, and there are some there are some other areas which could be helpful. I mean, there was a one year sort of fifty percent cut in business rates for retail hospitality that would mm. be quite helpful. The taper rate policy will make it a little bit easier for some people on universal credit. There'll be a rise in minimum wage that's been needed for a while now. And there's we're going to see an unfreezing of public sector wages, but of course, we don't actually know what, what that adds up to. Yeah, that's next year. Yeah. Right. The, 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 here's the thing. It, it's like he's, I don't want to use an obvious metaphor, but it is a bit like shifting deck chairs on the Titanic, because behind him, the thing he doesn't want to talk about are these twin sort of spectres, these twin nightmares, which is the labor shortage and inflation. They're not really separate things. I mean, they play into each mm, other. The labor mm. shortage triggers more inflation. And that is, you know, if you look, I mean, a few, a few weeks back, you've got the business committee talking to sector leaders. They're, they're saying, you could read the transcript, they're saying, we're terrified. Mm. And we're terrified of this rate of inflation. Yeah. We're terrified that we have shortages, we have labor shortages across the economy, like wherever you look, not just trucking, but waste, but care, wherever you look. The crisis is not created by government, but the severity of the crisis is mm. created by government. Mm. It is a repercussion from prioritizing anti-immigration policy above all other areas of your policy agenda. That is why this is so severe here and it is not elsewhere. So in that context, when that's the situation that we face, that's why things are going to get so bleak over the next few years. When he's throwing out these trinkets, you're like, well, fine, mate. But if you don't control inflation, then interest rates are going to have to go up. And if interest rate go up by 1%, that's 25 billion. That's all of the leeway that you yourself got. He's thinking it's about 20 to 30 billion by virtue of the change in the OBR's assessment of the economy. So it's, it's all fine and dandy, but it takes place underneath this massive, massive shadow, which he could barely deign to mention, let alone try and address. Yeah, and, and we have a situation where optimism is, is treated as a sort of legitimate economic lever. It's mm. like, what shall we do? Shall we put up in- interest rates? No, let's just pump up optimism. <laughs> That'll do it. Um, an astonishing amount of policies in the budget were briefed to the press in the days preceding it. Not leaked, briefed. It provoked common speaker Lindsay Hoyle's fury. At one time, ministers did the right thing if they briefed before a budget, they walked, he said. Deputy Speaker Eleanor Lang introduced the budget statement with, we are all very much looking forward to hearing the remainder of your announcements. Mm -hmm. Does it matter? And why did it happen? Are different parts of government trying to grab a slice of the credit? Or is there something else going on? I've got to say, I struggle to get too worked up about this. I mean, what they're really trying to do is establish sort of 
five days of positive news slots rather than one. You know, you, you release the budget, you get one day of positive news. That's what's going to happen today on, on Wednesday. By Friday, more of the demons, more of the gremlins in the script would have been found, as you were alluding to earlier, mm. you know, Institute of Fiscal Responsibility or uh, studies would have looked at it. And you'll start to see more. So they want more days leading up to it. So they have, you know, jobs day. And now we're going to pump more and some wages are going to be higher yeah. and you can con- try and control the agenda. I, say, I, I don't think it's too dissimilar to what we've mostly seen. Would I rather it didn't happen? Yes, sure, I would. That, I guess I just find it funny when Parliament is treated with such disdain by the government. But the thing they really get pocketed, the Speaker gets really upset about is this. And you're like, really? That's the thing? Like, I have to say, I disagree slightly with you. I think it's, I it's more insidious than that. Because what they get is five free days where they send cabinet ministers out to claim the credit for a policy. But every time they question on its detail, they, they can say, well, you're going to have to wait for the budget announcement. And that, I think, is a build-up of positive publicity with no scrutiny. Mm, that's undoubtedly true. Sunak is trying to balance basically the need, the need to stimulate the economy by spending while keeping at bay the fiscal hawks on his own backbenches who want low taxes and more austerity. And they're saying so in all the right-wing press. Do you think he's managed that balance for now? I'm not sure that that's even what he's trying to do at the moment. It's not clear that you know, if we'd had this conversation a year ago, obviously you're talking about stimulating the economy. That's what you're talking about. Mm. Um, even six months ago, that's not necessarily the case now. In fact, that some of the, the concern around the economy is about overheating. The trouble really comes back to what I said before, which is that they're unable to articulate a response to the economic facts because they are partly responsible for those facts Mm. and because doing so would raise questions around Brexit and immigration that they're not willing to answer. So he portrays himself with the flexibility that he gains by improved forecasts as, you know, I'm tough, I'm responsible, I'm fiscally sort of hawkish, but at the same time, look at how much I'm willing to spend. Mm. Um, I mean, that's you, you can try and make that case, but you are ultimately talking trinkets. You're not talking a major comprehensive assessment of the economy because that's just a territory he's not willing to go into. Yeah, yeah. The, the, the OBR uh, estimates include a table where they outline that basically trade with the EU will drop by 15% um, in the long term and that will result, result in a 4% drop in productivity. So, and all the measures of the budget put together are minor tweaks. Yeah. And of course, we don't know how far that goes, right? Because we don't know whether they are actual lunatics on what they're saying about the protocol or whether it's a bluffing game. Because if they're actual lunatics and that turns into a trade war, those numbers will suddenly get even more pernicious (laughs) than they are right now. (laughs) Mini, uh, Sunak is ending the public sector pay freeze, as Ian said, and increasing the minimum wage to £9.50. But the Institute for Fiscal Studies says this won't offset cuts to benefits, inflation and other measures like uh, the increase in national insurance contributions, does more need to be done? Yeah, I think you have to to break this down to work out, you know, what is the idea behind these changes? So the idea is to ensure that workers are better off financially. But as you've said, if they make all these other changes, that will impact on their ability to have stable financial situation or to weather economic crisis. You know, the IFS estimates that for minimum wage workers who rely on welfare support, disposable income will go up by just £250 if you take into account all of the changes. Now, the two things are contradictory, right? Mm. They're confused policies. You can't improve working conditions through finances at the detriment of living conditions. So 
If you buy the government logic that they can't afford to do both things at the same time, which they obviously can if if you look at everything else that's happened in COVID, really the only way to address that issue is through tax reform and through progressive taxation. But the Tories obviously don't want to do that because Mm. that wouldn't be popular with Tory voters. So, you know, even if you buy their logic, that is the only thing that can be done to improve both working and living conditions for everyone. So it's about presentation. I mean, universal yeah. credit is a case in point. Yeah. They cut six billion by gutting the twenty-pound uplift, and today they've returned. They've done something around the taper, basically how much you have to pay back if you go to work, which will cost two billion. So yeah. they've taken away <laughs> six billion in support, given two billion back, and suddenly the chancellor is a mensch. <laughs> you know, <laughs> look at all this stuff I'm giving you. Aren't I nice? Is there a danger that popular things are announced, but the responsibility for the bill is passed on? Budgets are a little bit like a New Year resolution that I will lose weight (laughs) if you diet. Um, Local authorities, for instance, employ a lot of people on minimum wage, not least in social care. Is it coherent to raise the minimum wage? without giving local authorities the money to pay for it. No, no. I mean, of course it's not coherent. I mean... So we're going to get a poll tax. (laughs) We'll have to have something. We're going to get a council tax. You know, and also if you just kind of... If you also think about who public sector workers are, like think about it, it's NHS workers, social care, teachers, people in transport and in the military. Every single one of those sectors has their own unique problems outside of pay, which make those jobs really unattractive and really difficult mm, and mm. all of those issues come down to departments not having enough financial support from the government to actually increase wages and kind of fix systemic problems and the government is also pushing that responsibility back onto the public sector bodies with responsibility for that by saying that they'll you know wait for the review and wait for them to report and it will be them who come back and say we can't afford it because you haven't given us enough money but they can blame it on them similarly with local authorities you know i think it kind of fits into how It's actually an electoral strategy, isn't it, when you think about Mm. local authorities? Like, if you think about how they're approaching the levelling up agenda, giving three billion to just Tory local authorities, if they pass the buck to local authorities who then aren't able to have extra funding, which basically is Labour or local authorities, local communities can say that Labour are to blame for them not being able to have Mm. enough support. That's an election strategy. Net zero has become a little bit like heaven. Every government wants to get there, but few are willing to give up any sins. Um, Do you think Sunak has shown much enthusiasm for green policy in his budget statement or any at all? (laughs) Was it mentioned? I do think it was. No, I I mean, he is sceptical about moving to a zero carbon economy. There were leaked documents from him to Boris Johnson showing that he is kind of in disagreement. He thinks that green investment could displace other investment opportunities. Basically, he's talking about private sector investment and that that could have a negative economic impact, which actually the OBR and the Committee on Climate Change disagree with, saying that actually, you know, we need to, to have a short, a small short term cost versus a huge cost if no action is taken. Yeah, and I also think there is there is some talk that the reason that Sunak has positioned himself like this is actually to improve his popularity with the Tory party mm. rather than necessarily being absolutely opposed to it. It's also it, worth mentioning, of course, that why would you cut you know, taxes on domestic flights? Yeah. First thing you want to yeah. do is you want to make trains yeah. more affordable. Yeah. I mean, this is a, well, because where are people going to drink their liqueur? Well, quite. Yes, <laughs> no, that's true. I wouldn't be seen dead 
drinking a liqueur on the ground. Oh, I don't know. I quite like it. I quite like a creme de menthe on the way to Leeds. Um, it's been touted by government sources and political correspondents as Sunak's first post-pandemic budget. And yet we've had over 300,000 new cases and 1,000 deaths in the last seven days. 10,000 deaths since Freedom Day, by the way. Government is reportedly preparing to announce stricter measures. How will the public react to restrictions from the same administration that keeps telling them every hour in the hour that the pandemic is over? I mean, it's just obvious what's going to happen, isn't it? I mean, people are going to be so frustrated and angry. And I think people will really, really struggle to go back to any form of restrictions because they've been kind of used to the fact that they can do things now and been told that that everything's going to be fine and that we've had this vaccination programme. I'm actually the most worried about how that does impact on the whole anti-vax, anti-mask movement, because I think people will read this as the vaccine is inefficient, the vaccine doesn't work, Mm. and therefore risking the whole vaccination programme, especially boosters, which is essentially what we need. Mm. Q fourth wave, floods effluent in the street locusts literally a government policy of eat shit and die (laughs) michael although the budget in its modern format is a relatively new invention the notion of it is as old as walpole's bag of tricks looking into the past what economic policies have had a profound effect in shaping britain's economic landscape for decades or centuries to come and even to the present day yeah, I think listening to the discussion, I think most budgets are like this. They're sort of tinkering and fudging between various fiscal and political pressures. And um, there there aren't that many memorable budgets, but some budgets are recognised at the time as setting a new path and a new direction. I think 1799, the, the income tax gave government a new tool, which has been absolutely fundamental. But, you know, it's applied and taken away, applied and taken away. Um 1846, I think, the free trade policy that came on the back of the abolition of the Corn Laws set British foreign policy and trade policy for, well, what was it, 60, 70 years. Mm. Um, but the, it's really a major economic, this is, you know, you don't need a historian to tell you this, but things take quite a long time to change and, and they don't change overnight. And and what's interesting about budget speak to me is how often the, the the gap between what is claimed for a budget and what it's actually doing. I think, you know, all the wrinkles and contradictions of today's announcements. So I have to say, because I've got a job, I haven't been following it very carefully. So <laughs> <laughs> but, but, you know, it, it was billed as a new age of uh, hope, wasn't it? Or Optimism. Or optimism. optimism. New age of optimism. And, and then, and then, as you say, it's about liqueurs on domestic flights and um, I think that's the experience of most budgets is a gap between um, the, you know what's claimed for them and what they're actually doing. But the, uh, you know, 1799, 1846, I'd say the Thatcher budgets of 1881 were recognised to be pretty dramatic at the time and did set fiscal and, and political economy mm. policies for for decades, really. And um, but I, I remember uh, talking to a New Labour insider in '97 and saying, you know, I was a bit disappointed by the Brown budget, and you know, he could have been bolder and the claim for it from the insiders was that he hadn't spent a budget surplus on tax cuts. And I think most budgets are of that kind, really. Mm, They're pretty mm. marginal tinkering. It's more um, Claudio Ranieri than um, 
than anything else, you know, <laughs> shrewd substitution near the end of the game, that sort of thing. Seventeen ninety nine a dog here for the taxpayers. <laughs> um. As well, I, I think my books on the history of taxation are still available. <laughs> How about pandemic? Many, many of your many of your listeners, no doubt, are googling Fury. Other other internet searches are. You'd be surprised. <laughs> We've cornered the geek market. Um, what about pandemics, Michael? How about pandemics of the past affecting our economic sort of future? We're told COVID nineteen scarring will not be as significant as first thought. Will history view it as a mere blip, or are the behavioural changes actually much more far reaching than we? can realise a year later or five years later? Well, a, a big change there in the, between this pandemic and the pandemics I actually know about is the possibility of pharmaceutical intervention. So the plague was lived with for, for hundreds of years and had profound economic effects and, and greatly increased the power of labour as against land and uh, was credited with all sorts of uh, modernising effects on the economy. The Black Death was was good for those who survived it. <laughs> uh, um, uh, but the you know typhus and cholera in the nineteenth century, relatively limited public health measures. There was more. They had profound effects on the urban environment and, and the impetus to to improve the urban environment. I think now we're, we're in a way we're able to shelter behind pharmaceutical treatment. No one really believes that. I mean, however bad it seems and however long it goes on, we, we do believe that in the end the, the boffins will save us, don't we? And uh, I, I suspect that behaviour change and political intervention won't won't be as dramatic because we'll put our trust in, in rightly, it, it seems, in the boffins. Many, in many ways, with so many challenges facing the country, Brexit, pandemic recovery, climate change, productivity gap, labour shortages, geopolitical challenges wider... This was both a time and an opportunity for a really ambitious budget, and it seemed to be pale in its scope and timid in its ambition. Is it a wasted opportunity? Is that the real, you know, crime of, of today's budget? Yeah, I mean, I think, as Michael said, I, I don't think I ever really expected this to be like a radical budget or a budget that actually touches the surface of what is needed for society. I think... The, th the way that I feel about it is I feel that everything about this current situation, COVID, Brexit, all of it is a, a wasted opportunity. It's a wasted moment. I had hoped that us all going through COVID together would see some kind of radical collective understanding of what's important and needs to be prioritised. Mm. But I actually think in some ways we're just even further apart. And I think that's the bit that feels really wasted to me that it hasn't brought us together at all yeah you can borrow more and we are borrowing so in fact the main thing you would have almost like the reverse of what we we're saying earlier is there's no immediate stopping of the borrowing all the stuff is pushed off to later mm. if you really look at like i mean you look at what's going on with departmental budgets i mean really you can start saying right we're just going to start pumping them mm. up mm. you know another 25 percent basically no we're, they're going to start putting them up they're not going to be i don't think i mean I'm going to put a health warning on this because we haven't looked enough at the yeah, details yeah. and it'll come out later. I don't think we're going to get to the point that we're in 2010. So we're still not going to be up to where we were literally a decade yeah. ago. But, you know, that is a tough call to make when you've got a heavy degree of uncertainty. You don't know how industry is moving. And you, you wouldn't, even if I was in charge, I wouldn't necessarily add 25% to the Ministry of Justice right now. So there, is, there are pretty severe restraints on him, predominantly around uncertainty. You'd have that with well, because COVID of, as well. Because, because Dominic Rubb 
He's in charge. I, mean, yeah, 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 the... I would cut 50% of the budget for the Ministry of Justice. <laughs> the, the less money you give him, the less damage. <laughs> no, no, just out of spite. <laughs> Sunak is undoubtedly good at the PR stuff, OK? The soft focus publicity shots accessorized with 95-pound flip-flops and fluffy-looking Labradors. But with Eat Out to help out fast turning into eaten out to help out. What is the panel's view of Dishy Rishi 20 months on? Let's start with you, Michael. Uh, well, I, I, he's turned into a rather conventional figure for me. Um, he, he's very easy on the eye, isn't he? And he's, uh, he seems less, uh, well, uh, you know, I'm an impartial historian, but clownish is a word that often occurs to me looking at the current government. And it doesn't occur to me when I look at Sunak. But it, it, I, I, again, I think there's a gap between Rishi's going to change the country and, and what Rishi is actually able or, or interested in doing. And um, so I'm a little bit, uh, I'm, I'm become a Sunak um, sceptic. Yeah. How about you, Ian? Um, he's very... Are you a convert? No, I'm not. It will surprise you to learn. Um, he's very smiley. And I think the smiles Such conceal... Such a low bar. It's very low bar. But one, very many politicians are unable to hurdle. And, and I think that conceals a, a, what's an increasingly regular series of evidence about his misjudgments. Catastrophic misjudgments, often. Mm. You look at what happens with COVID. You look at the way he... Talk, I mean, he has classic sort of treasury on really sort of like dated fiscal ideas. I mean, he is. I mean, every time... In fact, he did a, he did a fucking little political spiel during the budget today, which is one of the most oh, God, idiotic yeah. things where he said, the state isn't really important. What really matters is people. people. Yeah. It was like brassed off like by monkeys, yeah. basically. <laughs> so, you know, just came on and he was just like, really? Why those two yeah. things? Why not fucking cheese sandwiches? What really, you know, <laughs> cheese sandwiches are shit because people are good. Why not walls? You know, there was no limit to how fucking straw man he could go. So I do think ultimately when you look at the judgment, it is deeply, deeply unsound. And as Michael was saying, I mean, I'm actually really quite old fashioned Tory, quite Cameron, quite Osborne Tory, all concealed by the kind of soft, fo- so, fo- soft focus smiling. <laughs> I was going to call it a soft sofa, but all sofas are soft. And that was completely irrelevant. To it's only a little bit knitwork catalogue for my taste. <laughs> what about you, Minnie? Well, I feel like everyone knows what I'm going to say about it. Um, I, I think the word that I associate with him, I, I just find him really embarrassing. Like, I think he's really cringy. I don't know if you guys saw a video of him talking to some school kids about Coca-Cola. And that just, like, sums it up to me. Like, he thinks that he's really polished. He thinks that he's coming across a certain way to the public. And he's coming across a certain way to Tory voters. And they probably do like him. But for everyone else, I just feel like I would... He's like I just would never get on with him in person. He seems fake and he's embarrassing, and I don't think he's dishy. And I'm not going to say anything else because I get in trouble. But mm. <laughs> is this just because you prefer Pepsi? <laughs> <laughs> no, I actually love Coca Cola. <laughs> <laughs> Even that couldn't win you around. We're going to cut it? that. <laughs> We're going to cut that. They've paid us nothing. <laughs> 
Let's take a breather before our next item with a listener question in But Your Emails. Today's question comes from Sebastian. At a recent pub night, an acquaintance of mine declared, what we need is a benevolent dictator. Yes, we all know people like that. Someone who'll get everything sorted out, ignoring for a moment the liberality of dictatorships, um, the impossibility with regard to global geopolitics and the fact that no two people will agree what the it that needs to be done is. If you were a dictator, what one law would you make, break or change and why? Minnie, let's start with you. <laughs> I actually love this question because, <laughs> just because me and my friends have this conversation all the time, just about how I would go completely power mad if I was a dictator. Like, I would be out of control. Um, there's actually too many things to go um, with. actually too many things you to go to with. I think What's if, your big Well, obviously, it, you know, if it's going to have to be migration stuff, it would be like the hostile environment and all of that. I would just scrap it. Like, literally, the first thing I would do is just get rid of it. Give people the right to work. Give them the access to welfare support. Make sure that they can rent a house. Make sure they can access a bank account. Like, that just seems very obvious. But I'm just going to also say that um, Naomi is not here, but I'm going to say it for her. Electoral reform is the thing that I would really, really like to see. I think we just need it immediately because how else are we going to get out of this situation? Mm. Ian? Um, okay, so uh, on the uh, let me have one serious. Uh, the serious would probably be, honestly, I'd pick drugs, but I've already talked about drugs, so I'm going to have to talk about something else. Um, I'll probably make media studies mandatory in schools from the youngest possible age, make it part of the syllabus, and you can't get out of it. The main thing is to teach kids to critically appraise the media that they receive, the social media, TV, Would your the books news. be part of the syllabus? Yes, absolutely. It's obviously <laughs> I thought part one. Part one, of course. <laughs> really key to the entire endeavor um i think that yes that would be terribly important the second thing is i think i would probably pass a law against if you sell hamburgers the default is it fucking comes with cheese <laughs> like don't don't pretend it's like an extra that i have to pay one pound 54 they come with cheese the default should also be they don't come with ketchup or mayo you have to ask for it oh yeah what in it yeah, no, yeah. I need choice over that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I have to say, so far, Ian is winning. Um, <laughs> Michael. Was I too sincere? <laughs> Michael, name us your one measure. I, I think uh, Minnie took my one, which was uh, electoral reform. I think the, the system's choked by um, how, we, how we choose our politicians and what we expect from them and their impossibility of delivering on that. And I think it's corroding the system. So I think electoral, electoral reform... I, uh, I, I can't really rival. Uh, I don't feel so strongly about fast food. Uh, that I can, um, <laughs> Very few people do. I'm, I am shocked by the panel's <laughs> lack of imagination. I have to say, no one's mentioned. Fucking, we we could make it a law to live like the Jetsons and unlike those little spiky things. We could with get rid cars. of get rid of money altogether. That would be great. Wait a minute. <laughs> Nobody no, said that the laws <laughs> didn't apply. You're a dictator, man. Yeah, but dictators can't like, invent anti-gravity cars. <laughs> well, here's something to throw you off track. Mine would be to give big tax breaks to homegrown concrete. <laughs> <laughs> I think this country yes, could be world mean. leading in growing its own grown concrete. concrete. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you.
You've heard from him throughout the podcast. This week's guest is Michael Braddock, Professor of History at Sheffield University and author of A Useful History of Britain, The Politics of Getting Things Done. Michael, I cannot help but notice that getting things done is a very fashionable phrase. (laughs) Was there a light bulb moment while watching political coverage in the last few years that inspired the book? I'd, I'd like to say uh, yes, but honesty makes me say that it was the publisher's suggestion. <laughs> my my suggested title, which I'm too embarrassed to tell you, was said to sound like a social science textbook. Oh, um, you must tell us. No, no, you have to tell us now. <laughs> it was called People, Power and Agency, oh. rather than... Uh, oh. Right. No, they, they, they were right. Yeah, this one's <laughs> I mean, I like there's a, there's a reason I've not been in marketing. <laughs> is there, a, is there a, a definite period in the history of these islands where distinct national identities began to form? And what did that do to the country going forward? Yeah, so what I suggest in the book is that identities are connected with institutions and that without the institutions, identities are harder to foster. And, and there's quite a strong academic consensus that, that British identity takes root at the same time as a British state in the 18th century and that Britishness is um, taken much more seriously and, and for some periods in some places trumps other kinds of identity. Uh, the other big example in the book is King Alfred's court in the ninth century that the resistance to the Danes uh, fostered a sense of Englishness among Anglo-Saxons who previously defined themselves in other ways. So that uh, identity formation is linked to uh, institutions and uh, uh, it operates at lots of different levels. One of the things I want to do in the book is talk about British political life as if it's not the history of Britain, uh, but it's the history of the island and the various forms of identity that have persisted on the island. So uh, giving particular institutions power at other times has fostered strong forms of identity at local level as well. So it's about the shifting balance of all these things. And now we have Sandy Toxvig presenting the Great British Bake Off. What would Alfred make of that? (laughs) Um, You mentioned projects in ancient Britain that prove... Corporation gets things done from Stonehenge yeah. to Silbury Hill in Wiltshire, one of the biggest man-made prehistoric hills in Europe. Is our lack of collective spirit purely down to modern convenience or modern identity? Why build a hill when you can contract it out to someone, uh, you know, or have the state do it? I think we've lost faith in the capacity to act together and we have contracted out to the market or to other kinds of organisation. And it's a kind of inverse relationship between what's promised by politicians and what we think they're actually capable of doing. And it's that corrosion of belief in collective action that that motivated me to write about all this, really. Looking back over the 6,000 years, the book covers as much of our collective life as there is evidence for. So trying to trawl as broadly as possible and over time, people have done really remarkable things through coordinated collective action, and, and we're very reluctant to do it, even though we have big collective challenges like climate change or you know any of the others that we really talk about. One problem is that we think a vote in a Westminster election is somehow the, the solution to that problem rather than coordinated collective action over the long term and so on. So I, I, do, I do think we've lost faith, but, you know, Victorians cleaned up the urban environment uh, and tackled typhus and cholera. You know, we've achieved impressive things through acting together. 
one of the reviewers said a, a, another hack, I'm afraid, found it a bit kind of unreally optimistic. He thought I had plumped for optimism <laughs> in a kind of Rishi Sunak way. But... On this podcast, we encourage the idea that identities are not mutually exclusive, that Britain can yeah. be outward-facing and internationalist. Does that notion rub against a historical tendency to look inwards, to shun foreigners, to think of this place as superior? And is that the legacy of empire or is it an, a national psyche that actually gave rise to empire? Can so-called global Britain basically escape itself? Well, I, I, personally, I think it's a more recent thing that built into the way academics write about British history is that Britain was the first modern state, the first industrial society, and it was a model for much of the rest of the world. And understanding modernity, you have to understand the British state. So it's kind of baked into the way that British history is talked about, that understanding Britain is understanding the world. I don't think Tudor historians would have seen it that way. If you if you read a Tudor history, I don't think they think that at all. I mean, they may think that the British are special in particular ways, but they don't think, but, you know. So I think it's a product of empire, of industrial dominance in the 19th century, and the, the English genius, the British genius for moderation, while everyone else in Europe was having revolutions in the 19th century, we had moderate staged parliamentary reform and a constitutionally limited monarchy and so on. So I think there are these big moments in modern history which shape uh, then a selective account of what came before that. And another key moment uh, is I had a, a German colleague in my department who used to he had on his door uh, the the news the History Channel's schedule for a day, which was all Third Reich. And <laughs> he, he's, <laughs> yeah, we're we're obsessed with it because it's a moment of moral purity. We weren't uh, we weren't occupied. We didn't collaborate. We, you know, the, the, our experience of the Second World War is is a moment of moral purity, and it's very difficult to find another one in the British past. You write that there is an excessive emphasis on the great of Great Britain, not enough on the united of the United Kingdom. Do you think Brexit will ultimately act as a lever for breakup or cohesion? Because I know it's a very easy answer to say, oh, it's going to break the, the United Kingdom up. But I do have moments when I think actually the external pressure might act as a vice that uh, brings it together, actually. Yeah, what, what I was saying there was that for, to turn a kind of institution into a meaningful identity it has to be helpful to everyone who's connected with the institution and I don't think the politics of the UK have done that for mm. the Scots, the Welsh and the Northern Irish so I would go for uh, I'm, I'm personally in favour of the union and I, I, I but if I was Scottish I would think now I'm choosing between mem membership of the UK or the EU, which union do you really want to be in and Whatever the turbulence, I think if I were Scottish, I might well think, actually, in the long run, I'd rather be in the EU. So I, I worry that the Brexit's changed that politics and that the UK isn't offering enough to people to feel that it's a useful uh, institution through which they can act or, or, or express a kind of collective endeavour. Um, again, it come, I think electoral reform would have, would affect this, you know, if... if uh, there wasn't such a stark difference between electoral outcomes in different parts of the UK that would help bind us. There's this mechanism in your book that 
kind of melted my brain. It sort of felt like I was being <laughs> reprogrammed. So thank you for that. Um, it's uh, it's this sort of dynamic which goes from sort of collective power in a dialogue with differential power that's mediated by institutions and then, then creates a path dependency for future events. Now, I know if you haven't read the book, that sounds like complete gobbledygook. So can you just sort of map that out for us and, and how that operates? Yeah, so I, I have this invented example in the book of a, a draining a marsh, which no one can do on their own. So you kind of organise the labour to drain the marsh, and that's the collective power to achieve something collectively through collective organisation. Uh, but the people who are then coordinating that effort have a differential power. They can tell you that you have to work on Sunday afternoon and you have to do this and that. So they, they have the people who are coordinating have a differential power. And I, I suggest that all institutions have that quality, that they create a collective power, but they also deliver differential power to the people running them. In this village, say, in order to regulate that relationship between the desire to drain the marsh, but also to limit the power of um, Lordy and Dunt, you, you establish a committee with, with a written constitution which says what Dunt can or can't do with his differential power. And in other words, you institutionalise the relationship. So that's the, that's the basic dynamic. And you can apply that to um, parish councils or to the United Kingdom or to anything else, you know, that, that, that it's this set of dialogues between collective differential power and institutionalization. The fourth part of it is the path dependency, uh, that if you set up a drainage committee in one parish and you then have a problem of uh, managing sewage you might say well let's get the drainage committee to do it but in the neighboring parish where they don't have a drainage committee they have to do it some other way so once you've established these institutions they create a kind of path dependency that that is decisions in the future are shaped by decisions you've made in the past and that's really what creates national institutional histories, I think, is path dependency rather than national character. The, the UK is the product of that kind of path dependency, not some innate quality of decency or Britishness or whatever that's been expressed in the UK. So, uh, uh, but, it, you know, the UK is one of those things. The Kingdom of Wessex is another. Greater Manchester is another. The Metropolitan Water Board gets, uh, gets a big billing in the book. <laughs> uh, the, the, but you, the, the, the claim of the book is that you can understand all, all institutional politics can be looked at through this lens. And, and it helps historicise the argument about any particular one. And uh, in particular, you could talk about the EU that way, that it, it creates collective power everyone recognises in all sorts of areas, but that also creates differential power, which people worry about. And, and, you know, that's one way of thinking about a lot of the Brexit debate. So it's really trying to sell that as a way of thinking about all this historical experience about how people have acted together and how they've achieved things without suffering the, the detriment of, of uh, you know, excessive differential power over them of Lordy and Dunt Lordy, yeah, yeah, yeah. Trying, it's a matter of time trying sure. to drive a marsh in order to smoke it <laughs> recognises one of the most effective drainage lords and I don't know why your question is real frankly <laughs> You sort of mentioned in the book, you know, that this this extraordinary thing looking at international institutions that happened with the WHO. You know, you have COVID here. You get this real sense that in a sort of mobile world, public health scares are global public health scares. And yet the WHO doesn't really have a very good pandemic. I don't suppose any of us had a great pandemic, but it doesn't have a particularly good one. 
You also look with the EU of this thing of, you know, you've got an institution here organising along those principles of some things a country can't do on its own, but that the it doesn't feel like there's a European electorate in order to be able to restrain it. Are we sort of stuck in this period? Is the whole definition of the era that we're living in, where there's a globalisation of the institutional need, but there isn't a globalisation of sort of the electorate to go with it and, and the political consciousness to go with it? I'm not really doing anything there that but posing a problem that all these global governance types talk about, but... Uh, exactly. The mechanism we have is really the Westphalian system, 1648, how do you achieve multilateral things among independently acting sovereign states? And we've expanded the Westphalian system at Versailles to, to include economic management and since the Second War to include various other things. But the two tools we use really for global governance are uh, interstate, multi-state kind of agreements and uh, treaty agreements. Because we we can't legitimise global governance. And um, I think it's really hampering the climate change stuff. COP26 seems to be completely afflicted by uh, independent states acting with their electoral interests at heart, not with the shared problem at heart. You know, it's a global problem, but we're not acting on a global basis. We've got a series of independent actors trying to agree amongst themselves through a system that was you know, in origin for something else altogether. So I think there's a real problem about global governance. And I think that one obstacle, uh, you you know, I sort of give away which way I voted in 2016. I think one obstacle is is an obsession with sovereignty, which is actually quite a recent idea. Many people lived without an idea of sovereignty for a long time, multiple overlapping jurisdictions. I want to do this, I'll go here. I want to do that, I'll go there. And our sense that everything has to be channeled through Westminster uh, both puts too much weight on Westminster politicians and leads to political disengagement, but but doesn't allow us to actually deal with global problems. So WHO, to take a specific example, if, if we thought less about sovereignty and more about jurisdiction, what jurisdiction does the WHO have in China? Can it make public health measures in China stick? And can it force the Chinese to cooperate? And national governments are very reluctant to accept that because if you allow them into China, you've got to allow them in here as well. So I think that's the key, you know, looking from a historical perspective, that's the problem that our the globalisation of our collective challenges is not yet matched by a globalisation of our capacity to manage them. Michael, you've talked a fair bit about kind of collective action and, and standing together. We tend to think of things like civil rights and emancipation as fairly new concepts. You know, women yeah. only gained suffrage in 1928. Um, and there obviously are examples further back in British pe- history of people fighting for their rights. I, I was just wondering if you could give us some examples of that that, you know, stretch beyond our fairly recent history. Yeah, I think, um, so one of the examples I give in the book is Magna Carta that starts out as a deal among the very rich in 1215, but it gradually extends. And in the 1640s, the period I know about, it was it became the basis for an assertion of the rights of all English men. Magna Carta rights and the rights of a citizen get extended by the suffragettes. I'm a citizen and yet I have no representation. Uh, and then Magna Carta rights are asserted by the defendants in the Mangrove Nine trial. For that reason, I think the history of rights is not specific to any particular group. I think it's a history of rights. And a theme of the book is uh, we've talked about collective and differential power. Differential power is not just political. There are more Etonians in the cabinet than people from my school. 
And that's because there's a relationship between the differential political power and other other differentials in power. And a lot of the book is about how you can use collective power to overcome differential power in the political sphere, but also differential power elsewhere. Uh, so there's a chapter on inequality and in inclusion and how people have, have made use of the tools around them to secure influence. And it includes issues of race, gender, sexuality and so on. But they do have very long histories. And on sort of kind of issues of, you know, race, I mean, this is something I obviously care a lot about as um, interim chief executive of a migration charity. Anti-immigration rhetoric has tended to focus on whether someone is really British based on things like where they were born or what language they speak. And, and you sort of touched on this earlier, but how important do you personally think British identity is? And, and are there concrete things that can mark people as British or, or is it based on a feeling? Well, I think we're encouraged to to see it as a feeling and an attachment and something intrinsic to our own personhood. But I, uh, I think a more plausible kind of nationalism is that I buy the values of this political system and I'm a patriot for this political system. So I, I draw a distinction between civic and ethnic nationalism, really, and that uh, if you want to cultivate Britishness, you should make the British system work for people. It's back to my argument about the... UK really that if you want people to believe in the UK it has to work for them uh, don't just keep telling them that they're British um, <laughs> and I, uh, I think there's a the history of inclusion really is is extending the claims of the British state to all the people living on the island you know including first poor men then women then people of colour then people of non-normative sexuality <laughs> Time for a new feature. Each week we're inundated with news like effluent into the waters of a Tory safe seat. So each week we will ask our panellists to pick one story they think is either not cutting through yet or maybe shaping the news agenda in the next week in One to Watch. Mini. Yeah, I mean, we have talked about this a lot. It's not a new news item as such, but I think there is an interesting thing happening with the Nationality and Borders Bill at the moment in Parliament. So it's at committee stage at the moment and it will continue to be next week. But what is interesting about it is that bill was published with, it was quite a blank bill in a lot of ways. There were a lot of empty clauses. And at committee stage, the government has introduced a whole bunch of new detail that we're just starting to understand through debate. So next week, we can kind of expect um, fun things like the standard, whether or not the government should send asylum seekers to third countries based on deals we don't have with countries who don't want them. And a fascinating thing that's come out of it is, you know, whether or not the Home Office should measure people's skeletons to decide whether they are children or not, and whether Border Force should be allowed to watch people drown. So that's going to be an exciting few weeks in Parliament. Thanks, Minnie. That sounds great. I can't wait for that. I I suspect that... Filling La Manque with Le Merd um, will, will act as a very effective disincentive to cross the channel. Um, How many shit jokes have you made? Quite a lot. That's nine. I'm enjoying it. How about you, Ian? Yeah, well, so let's talk about Superman. Um, so there was Superman. I'd like to say those are jokes about shit, <laughs> not shit jokes. Pick one. Um, so, <laughs> so Superman. Superman's bisexual, or rather his son, John Kent, who's now taking the mantle of Superman, yeah. is bisexual. This triggered a lot, sort of lots of outrage in sort of American cultural circles, which was transmitted by the now traditional medium of Nigel Farage onto our screens. 
Um, what I found interesting about this is that the next issue has Superman on a climate change march on the cover, <laughs> holding a banner saying fix climate change or whatever. I was like, oh, good. So now they'll shit themselves over this. <laughs> I mean, presumably not quite to the same degree, but I, I, I'm quite full of appreciation to just like the extent to which DC Comics is just going to double down on this <laughs> shit and just be like, no, he's fucking full woke now. Let's just see. Let's see you guys have a hernia in real time. Supergirl will be trans next <laughs> <laughs> issue what about you michael well i i felt a bit intimidated about this because i assumed any news that was unfamiliar to me would be very familiar to all the other panel but you'd be surprised so i reframed the question in a historian's way and thought <laughs> what would i like to know more about and and i think escobar's hippos are very interesting it's been treated as a whimsy story but actually treating animals as legal persons uh, is really kind of mind-bending and i'd like to know more about that why some legal systems do it and why some don't and and how if we did that whether it would reorder our relationship with you know nature and so on so i'd like to know more about escobar's hippos apart from they're in the perfect environment with no predators and isn't that you know amazing michael this is our first time trying this segment and you have already fucking detonated it yeah we didn't even we didn't even get through the first fucking time (laughs) (laughs) this is the sort of story i want not fucking comics (laughs) (laughs) and that's the show my humble thanks to ian oh thank you meaning thank you and to our special guest michael braddock Thank you very much. Stay tuned for our extra bit for Patreons. You'll hear a quick preview after our theme song, Demon is a Monster by Corner Shop, and a thanks to our latest backers. Hello, and thanks to Louise Stubbs, Rachel Ridley, Thomas Elliott, Max Niveton, Nicholas Whiteside, Jackie Hussain, James Denman and Ben. And it's a big shout from me to Laurie Johnson, Michael Waiting, Ute Boxsteggers, Andrew Facey, Simon Best, Vicky Knight, Robert Stark and Mike Swindles. And from me, hello and thank you to Benny Pfunder, Claire Kelly, Sam McDermott, John Gordon, Ian Shell McLeod, Andrew Wright, Jack Presho and Ben Lydgate. See you next time. Oh, God, what now? Was presented by Alexandre with Ian Dunt and Minnie Raman. The producer was Andrew Harrison. The assistant producers were Jacob Archbold and Jan Losofranievich. An audio production was by me, Alex Reese. Art direction by Mark Taylor. Oh, good, what now? Is a Podmasters production. Happy Halloween. Welcome to the extra bit for Patreon backers. Our cultural world is full of historical epics with ever muddled caveats like based on a true story. On the last duel, to my personal favourite, A Fable from a True Story, which opens the execrable Spencer. And since Michael Braddock is with us this week, we're discussing the biggest dramatic licences ever taken in fiction. Minnie. I don't know. I'm going to be honest about this, right? And I'm actually really glad that Michael is here because I so often watch things that I now don't know whether my understanding (laughs) of history is through the film or through something I've learned. So, like, the thing that stood out to me and I was just like, I actually have no clue whether my understanding of this is real. It's just the Tudors. Like, I've watched so much shit about Anne Boleyn (laughs) and just, like, about Henry VIII, and every single film is, like, slightly different. And I'm just like, 
I only know that he had six wives and that's about it. And I think when I was like kind of thinking about this, I was like, there's so many times that I, you know, watch things where I sometimes start watching it and then I think this could be historic or not. So how am I supposed to know is the main question. <laughs> well, you could look it up. I could, <laughs> but I'm not a historian. <laughs> Just a wild suggestion. I don't if you're interested time. in the era, open a fucking book. <laughs> how about you, Ian? Um, I mean, my, my worst recently... I don't, it's, that was a trailer for the bonus fringe event in this week's podcast. If you'd like a little bit more Oh God What Now every week without ads and a day early, then sign up to Backers on Patreon for as little as £2 a month. It really does help to keep us going. And don't forget our new weekly minicast, Oh God What Else, out every Monday morning exclusive to Backers. Thanks for listening. See you next week.